Hi, I'm Sean Stanley, head of the Globe Content Studio at the Globe and Mail. I'm also host of a new podcast called Industry Interrupted. We're looking at how traditional business sectors are being disrupted. From law to agriculture to finance, what's forcing change in these industries? And what does it mean for the Canadian economy and you as a consumer? Find the latest episodes of Industry Interrupted on your favorite podcast platform. This episode of I'll Go First is brought to you by Acura, leading the way in auto innovation for over 30 years. Keep listening to discover how Acura sees things differently in the pursuit of precision-crafted performance. When I was younger, it wasn't that popular to read comics. It seems very PG-13 now, comic mm-hmm. books to be. Whereas I look at things like Neil Gaiman and Sandman, like mm-hmm. those felt really real. Now it feels kind of like plain vanilla. Hi, I'm Takara Small, and this is I'll Go First from The Globe and Mail. This is not your average tech podcast. We're going beyond the headlines and behind the million-dollar deals to chat with innovators and industry trailblazers. On this episode... My name is Paul Lem. I'm the CEO of Spartan Bioscience. We make the world's smallest DNA analyzer. It gives you instant access to DNA information. Your DNA holds the answer to every question you have about your body. And for the most part, those answers have been too expensive for the average person to unlock. At Paul's company, they're inventing a new way, though, to give you the key to all that essential data on demand. Before he was an entrepreneur, Paul was actually a doctor. He could have been happy with that life. It's good. It's stable. It's where you can make a lot of money. But he saw himself going down a different path. So he quit. It was a leap of faith. But that kind of risk and desire to do something different is a quality he has always admired. He loved it in Wolverine, his favorite comic book character, and he loves it in the work he does now. In this episode, I talk to Paul about the secrets hidden in your DNA, why it takes more than an MBA to be an entrepreneur, and what the new Marvel movies are missing. Here's our conversation. What does your company do that no one else does? Most people would say our company is the closest to bringing DNA testing to everyone. So what I mean by this is, If you walk into a pharmacy, if you walk into your doctor's office, if you go to your bathroom, there is no DNA analyzer sitting on your countertop. That's all about to change. So we have this world's smallest DNA analyzer. It's about the size of a coffee cup. And you can collect a DNA sample, put it in there, and get results in minutes. And so we are now developing all of these tests where for the first time, average consumers can get access to that DNA information. Okay, and why would a consumer, someone who's listening to this podcast, why would they want that type of device in their home? Wouldn't it be amazing if any time you thought you were sick or any time you wanted to know something about your health, you could quickly do a simple test and get that answer? Mm -hmm. For example, imagine your child has a sore throat. Well, you're wondering, is this just some sort of virus that's going to go away or... Could it be something like strep throat that's more serious and has to be treated immediately? Imagine you just walk into your bathroom, take a little swab from your kid, you put in the device, hit go, and then in minutes it tells you, yes, it's strep throat and you should get this antibiotic. Think of it like instant diagnosis in the palm of your hand. It's just like you carry a smartphone in your pocket now. Well, that's basically a supercomputer. You now have instant access to information technology that never existed in the history of humanity. And think of DNA as Mother Nature's original information technology. Mm -hmm. So you deserve to get access 
to that information. In general, what would something like this cost? So for our industrial users, it's several thousand dollars for the device and call it $100 to $200 for the test. As we move more to consumer, as we get higher manufacturing volumes, our plan is to drop the price of that device down to maybe a few hundred dollars and then each test strip test cartridge down to call it 20 or 30 dollars. It's interesting because I think it also could be used as a tool to alleviate some of the stress that our healthcare system is experiencing right now. Absolutely. So look at the way the healthcare system works now. If you or I want to get treatment, we have to book some sort of appointment, wait hours maybe in the waiting room, wait in the emergency room. Then the doctor comes in, we, we take a look at maybe a chest x-ray, we squint our eyes, and we make a guess as to the diagnosis. And we probably get it wrong, we probably give you the wrong antibiotic, the wrong drug, and then you have to book follow-up appointments. But all that can be done away with when suddenly you have access to that information yourself. Have you ever heard of analysis paralysis? So the fact that there are so many new applications and technologies that can analyze what you... Yes, exactly. (laughs) You know, I didn't have to finish my... Yeah. So then how how does your company deal with that? And how do you um, deal with that? That's a great question. So what we do is we focus on DNA tests that are actionable. So when you get a result, you know exactly what you should do with it. So then you get past all that analysis paralysis. So I'll give you an example. One of our tests is for Legionella contamination of air conditioning systems in buildings. If that test comes up positive, then you know you need to add chlorine to your water system so it kills the Legionella and doesn't infect people. What's the biggest misconception that you think people have about what you do? The first thing that comes to mind is, People probably think I just take a lot of meetings and don't do much (laughs) because all they see is me talking to people and they're wondering, that seems pretty easy. Anyone could just talk to people. So I would say the misconception is when you're meeting people, every meeting is an opportunity to push things forward by either inspiring people or recruiting more allies. Mm. And in order to inspire people and recruit allies, I find you need a really good command of human psychology. So this is another thing I really didn't realize for many years when I became an entrepreneur, that probably the most useful skill is understanding psychology. So, for example, you might walk into a meeting with some of your engineering team, and you need to have the social skills to realize, huh, they don't seem that happy. I wonder why. And then if you just Mm -hmm. ask them, oh, you don't seem that happy. Most people say, oh, no, I'm fine. It's just I didn't get enough sleep. But yeah. if you're really attuned to them, you'll actually say, no, you know, I think there's something bothering you. And then you'll actually say, what is it? And then you'll get into a conversation and you'll unpack the layers of the onion. And then if you do things and actually listen and actually help, by the end of that 30 minutes, the person can come out with actionable things. They see that you care and they actually see what can make their lives better. But mm-hmm. I think that's an advanced level of social skills that took me many years, and I'm still working on it. It's interesting. It's not something that's necessarily taught in your average MBA, but it sounds like an incredibly useful skill. Exactly. I'm, I'm amazed that people pay, whatever it is, $50,000 a year for MBA education with things that you can basically just read off the internet, whereas the really useful skills, such as social skills, I mean, everyone writes on their resume, I have great social skills, but I find that's generally not true. And I think a big part of it is, No one actually knows what it means, and no one actually trains you the right way. So if they even just spent the MBA time truly training people to have great social skills and command of human psychology, I bet those graduates would do way better in the real world. 
So let's pivot a little bit to your personal life because this was uh, a decade in the making and mm-hmm. the R&D that it required and the fact that it's also been cleared by um, Health Canada. That mm-hmm. must have meant that a large portion of your life was dedicated to working. Yes, this has been most of my working life has been focused on this and it's been a lot of sacrifice. I think the thing that's kept me going is myself and the team, we've always had this vision of revolutionizing healthcare. So I'll preface this by saying I'm a medical doctor by training. And in the field of medicine, our holy grail has always been instant diagnosis and instant cure. Once you have those two things, then you basically get accessible healthcare for everyone in the world. And we see ourselves as bringing humanity closer to that instant diagnosis part of the holy grail. So what sacrifices? You mentioned that you've had to give up things. So I know when I left medicine to become a biotech entrepreneur, my parents thought I was crazy. So (laughs) (laughs) Chinese Canadian. And my parents, they always pushed me to become a medical doctor. And the day I got into medical school was one of the happiest days of their lives. So you can imagine I'm on this path to become a respected professional. I'll always have a job. And then I throw it all away and become an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. where You can go bankrupt at any time. Things can go bad. You have all sorts of competitors around the world. So it's giving up that safe, secure life and exchanging it for the life of an entrepreneur. So the downside is it's very risky. The upside is if you work hard and you have a bit of luck, you can really change the world. And so I guess they've come around now that your company is uh, not only cleared in Canada, but the U.S. as well. Yes, exactly, TK. So I think it was things like, when we got interviews in the Global Mail, when we started showing up on TV, when we got validation such as FDA clearance, health care approval, those are the sorts of things that made my parents think, okay, our son has not just told me his future, <laughs> he's actually doing something that is working. How did they feel when you decided to partner up with your brother? So now that's not just one son, but that's two sons that decided to become entrepreneurs? Yes, that's a great question. So that's exactly what happened. So what happened was my original biotech company, I raised venture capital and we ran that company and I had to wind it down. Near the end of that company, I had actually hired my brother and convinced him to take a year off his engineering science degree at University of Toronto. So my parents thought, this is crazy. My, your brother, he has one year left to go. If he leaves, maybe he'll never go back because you read all sorts of stories about university dropouts, and they never finished their studies. And so that was my parents' fear. And especially when we wound that company down, they were wondering, is John, my brother, going to go back and finish off his degree, or what's going to happen? But thankfully, fast forward 10 years, he then finished off his degree, went to work on Bay Street, and then rejoined our company. And he's been a big factor in powering forward our success. And what are the benefits of working with family? Because I can imagine it might be stressful at times. Yes, definitely. There are ups and downs. So as brothers, when we were kids, we used to fight a lot. I think the Oh, what did you fight about? Wait, what did you fight about? Oh, everything. It was who can get the best comic book, who gets the bed that's closest to the door, (laughs) all sorts of stupid things. When I look back now, it's pretty crazy. Uh, I think the advantage, though, now that we're older and more mature is it's no holds barred. It's, it's the person in our company who I know will give me extremely direct feedback. Not always right, not always wrong, but it's always that alternative perspective. And I think I'm a big believer in having different points of view around the table. People who are on the same team all share the same goal. 
but a different point of view because then it keeps us all honest. And it's interesting because you're able to merge your medical degree and education with entrepreneurship, which isn't that common. Mm -hmm. Are you a rarity? Do you meet other people in the industry who have the same experience and background? I rarely meet medical doctors who have left the profession to become an entrepreneur. And I've had years to think about this. And I think the reason is because, first of all, when you go to become a doctor, it's so many years and most people have to take on a huge amount of student debt. Mm -hmm. and so by the time you graduate, you might have a wife, kids, a house, a mortgage. You have to pay off all your debts. And there's just very little way you can rationalize to yourself of abandoning all that investment in order to go down a very risky entrepreneurial path. So I think that's why it's, there's very few people who would make that jump. I think one of the things that convinced me to make the jump is I just realized medicine wasn't for me. The way I see medicine is there's very much a standard of care. There's an algorithm that you have to follow for the patients that you see. And you really can't deviate from it because it's the standard of care. There's the best evidence. Mm -hmm. And after a while, I was finding it was pretty boring to me personally. I really wanted to do something that was much more creative and that also had the potential to affect a lot more people. Mm -hmm. One of the things I always think about is I ask myself, when I'm 80 years old and I look back on my life, because we only all have a very short time on the planet, will I be proud of what I tried to do? And I think medicine was, it's a very good career. I, I think people, doctors make a really big difference. For me, though, it felt like if I went down that path, it was the safe, secure path where it'd be good, but it wouldn't be my full potential. So mm -hmm. I decided I, I just have to leave. I have to go give entrepreneurship a shot. While you were building Spartan, did you ever feel that you missed out on some of the regular day-to-day -day things that some of your colleagues got to experience because they didn't have this huge burden of pushing forward a company? Yes, definitely. So I say to people, the life of an entrepreneur is a really tough road. It's often very lonely and there's often times where it looks like you're about to become a big failure. Whereas I think if you do a career such as becoming a medical doctor, so I look at the people I graduated from medical school with, pretty stable, secure lives. They work their hours, they go home on weekends, they have family vacations, they do all that normal stuff. So as an entrepreneur, I think for the first, I don't know, five plus years, like no vacations, working all the time, and never knowing if you're going to fail or succeed. So it's, mm -hmm. it's very different and you give up a lot. Was there ever a particular moment or experience you remember where you realized how different your life was from those of your friends who went to medical school? Maybe like a graduation or maybe like when they were out watching a movie and you're like, okay, I'm stuck in the office still. Yes, right. I think one of the things that immediately jumps to my mind is one of our medical school reunions where we met up at a hotel and then I'm talking with all my friends and I realized, yeah, they're leading totally normal, safe, secure lives. And I realized mm -hmm. after this reunion, in an hour, I have to go back to the office and immediately work on a bunch of reports and send a bunch of emails, whereas their lives were not like that at all. And so how do you balance personal and work? I tell people one of the interesting things I found about going from a medical career to an entrepreneurial career is I actually find entrepreneurship gives you much more latitude to balance your life. So when I was in, I know most people, I don't think they, they realize this. So I know when I was in, for example, first year of my medical residency in Toronto, I was easily working 80 to 100 hour weeks all the time. And I tell people I had no cavities 
my entire life growing up. And that year I got five cavities because I was drinking Coke and eating chocolate bars all the time. But you are terrible. a doctor. You know better. I, know. I don't know better. When you have no time, when your pager is always going off, you have literally 30 seconds to wolf down a chocolate bar and that's it. You don't have time to sit down and eat like healthy vegetables. That's one of the things about medicine. It really prepares you, I think, for that life of an entrepreneur because it's almost like shifting down a gear. Because when you're an entrepreneur, no one expects you to work 80 to 100 hour weeks. And I think even if you do, it impairs your judgment, impairs your thinking. So I was actually able to get my life much more in balance where I can work out, I can actually eat healthy. Even though I might have to work later than most people, it's mm-hmm. nothing compared to the life of a medical resident. Do you ever take time off? Do you have like maybe a set day or a set time where you're like, okay, this is all about Paul? Yes. So one of the big things I've learned being an entrepreneur is working long hours and working really hard is not necessarily the best way to do things. And the reason is because I found one of the things that separates really successful entrepreneurs is the ability to think clearly and predict the future accurately. You have to mm-hmm. be able to see clearly what's going to happen 10 or 20 years from now. And I mm-hmm. find in order to do that, you have to be really well rested. You have to have good diet and nutrition. You have to have good exercise. And so one of the things I've done is I work out six days a week. I eat vegetables, fruit, and protein. Like I eat really well. And I get at least seven hours of sleep a night. And I know when I was in medicine, yeah, I used to think, oh, that's just for weak people or, you know, that's actually wasting your time. You're not actually a real entrepreneur if you're pampering yourself that way. But no, I've actually found by implementing that sort of life, good life habits, I can think much more clearly. And especially as the head of a company, when you're in those meetings, those strategy meetings, when you're making big decisions, you have to be able to think clearly because that decision you make now can affect your company for five years to come. That's how high the stakes are. And so tell me a little bit about what you were like as a kid. Did you have any entrepreneurs in your life? I mean, I would say as a kid, I was a huge nerd. It's, yes, I would, nerds I mean, unite. I exactly. love it. Like reading Marvel comics, watching Star Trek. You know, one of the things in class, most of my classmates would say is they would always notice that I tried to finish my homework as fast as possible so that I could spend the rest of the class reading science fiction books. I love it. And that was my motivation for being able to get so good at homework because if I could finish it in like five or ten minutes then I don't have to bring it home and I had the rest of the 30 minutes to read my favorite sci-fi book. So what is your favorite Marvel comic and why? Ah hmm I always liked Wolverine. He's part of the Weapon X program. He had all this experiments done on him Mm -hmm. but he managed to get that adamantium exoskeleton and break out of the thumbs of all these scientists And then go on and actually occasionally do some good for the world while he's trying to battle his own personal demons. I think looking back, I think one of the reasons I like it is because I've always been kind of anti-authority. You know, growing up in my life, it's my parents are telling me to go to med school. You go into Mm -hmm. medicine. It's very much standard of care. You have to do it a certain way. And I've always never liked that. I've always wanted to rebel and do something different. And I like that about Wolverine. He goes and does his thing. Mm -hmm. He still contributes, but he does his thing. Mm Mm-hmm. I was always a Jubilee or Storm. Those are my uh, two favorites. Jubilee. So why Jubilee? 
I think because she was so young and she was so confused and misunderstood. Mm. And I think I was just identifying with the fact that I as well, like was growing up in a small town, one of the only black families. And I was just like, I kind of understand how she doesn't see how she fits into this newfound family, you know, the X-Men. So right. I kind of was just like, oh, we're kind of alike. And also like, come on, our powers, are, they're dangerous, but they're so pretty too. <laughs> That's time, right. right. Whereas Storm is kind of the super powerful call down the lightning of thunder exactly and she knows what she's doing like there is no um confusion about her place exactly. <laughs> elemental forces yeah exactly. as opposed to jubilee right and so you're you loved sci-fi i'm mm-hmm. wondering um did that kind of motivate you to go into tech into medicine was there some connection there absolutely so one of the things i love about sci-fi is the author will make some sort of technical assumption and then build a world around what would happen if warp drive, like faster than light drive, actually existed? Or Mm -hmm. what would happen if you could live forever because someone invented some sort of drug that will let you do that? And then Mm -hmm. all the repercussions, all the consequences that happen. I just love stuff like that. Reading all the sci-fi then exercised that muscle in my mind about make an assumption and then if it happens, work your way back. So mm-hmm. I'll give an example. One of the things I've always been impressed with Jeff Bezos, the CEO and founder of mm-hmm. Amazon, is he'll ask people, what is something that will not change 20 years from now? And for Amazon, the answer he came up with is people will always want lower prices and they'll always want faster delivery. So when you know that, when you know 20 years from now, 50 years from now, lower prices, faster delivery will always be constant, mm-hmm. then you can work backwards and build towards that North Star. And we've Mm -hmm. done that at our company, Spartan Bioscience, where we've asked ourselves, what is the holy grail of medicine? It's always instant diagnosis. Everyone will always want faster, cheaper, more accurate diagnosis. You can never go wrong. And this is how we did R&D for 10 years. We always had that as our North Star. Because we're always working towards that and never getting distracted, eventually we cracked the R&D challenge. And we have something that is as relevant now as it was 10 years ago, and will be relevant another 50 years from now. Now, the Acura Innovation Series. Old ways don't open new roads. To give the NSX the revival it deserved, Acura needed to overhaul everything. Engineering, design, manufacturing, everything. The result is a bespoke beast. With world-first technologies inside the car and the manufacturing processes behind it, the NSX takes exhilaration in a new direction and redefines the next generation of precision-crafted performance. Visit acura.ca slash nsx to learn more. Did you have any entrepreneurs in your life growing up? My dad was always very entrepreneurial. So while he was a teacher at school, on the side he also ran basically a real estate, uh, like a mini real estate business where he would buy houses in downtown Toronto, fix them up, rent them out, and then sell them. And so that always inspired me to see that, yes, you can have these side businesses and you can make them really successful. I'm wondering, like, do you have something on the side that you do, whether it's for profit or for fun, that keeps you centered and sane? My first thought is it's the hobbies I have. So things like doing yoga, meditating, reading books. So that keeps me sane. Mm -hmm. And then something else I like doing is helping build that next generation of entrepreneurs. So here in Ottawa, where we're based, 
for the last 10 years, I've been running this group called Fresh Founders. So we are an invitation-only club of some of the best young entrepreneurs in Ottawa. So two of our most famous members would be Toby Gutke and Harley Finkelstein of oh, Shopify. right, yeah. Mm-hmm. So they actually met at our Fresh Founders events. So we've been able to catalyze a bunch of these young entrepreneurs and really help accelerate their success. And I think myself and Toby and Harley, we're, we're very proud of helping the next generation. Mm-hmm. And just speaking of the industry overall, so uh, you're Chinese-Canadian. Mm-hmm. How do you feel being a person of color in an industry that is predominantly white? Growing up, I always felt like I had to work harder and be better than others because like my family, they came over with nothing. And so we didn't have the advantage of social connections. Like my dad couldn't just call up someone at a big law firm and say, hey, my son would like you know a summer job. So I always had to fight for you know those sorts of things, kind of like Wolverine. Like he has to get out there into the real world and, and fight for stuff. And I think it was hard growing up. I also think it's made me into the entrepreneur I am. Like I'm just persistent, like relentless. Like I'll, I'll be polite about it, but when there's something that I think is important, I will keep working at it. And you mentioned your parents came here with nothing. What was that mm-hmm. like? I imagine um, that really influenced your work ethic. Yes, definitely. So I know growing up, I mean, my dad would always be telling us stories how literally he came over from China with nothing. And he always had to hustle. He always had to work hard. And I know in our basement, he had this big poster that said, hard work is the key to success. And he would tell us stories how he used to pick up pop bottles in Toronto and exchange them for pennies and then use all those savings to buy his first house in downtown Toronto and then rent it out and then eventually sell it wow. and then keep repeating it. And so he was, he's like a self-made person. Like he, he literally pulled himself up by his bootstraps. And I think it's always inspired me that Canada is an, a country where we're welcoming to new immigrants. If you work hard, you play by the rules, you do the right thing, you can be successful. Like you can literally in one generation come here with nothing like my dad and then raise a bunch of smart, healthy kids and send them off to medical school or engineering school. And then mm-hmm. your son can actually start up this company that has a good shot at changing the world. Okay, so now we're going to move on to what is my favorite section. It's called Rapid Fire. Okay. All you have to do is answer the questions I'm going to share with you in one word and as quick as possible. Ah, stream of consciousness. You want to get the true... I want to get to know you my better. My psyche, right? Yeah. You want to get I want right to know into the my real psychology. real Paul. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Ready? Yes. Okay. Awesome. What is your greatest fear? Uh, fear of failure. What do you do for fun? Uh, yoga. What motivates you? I want to change the world. What is your perfect day off? Ah, sitting at the beach. How many hours do you work in a day? Nine to ten hours. What's the one word friends would use to describe you? Crazy. Favorite TV show? Star Trek. Favorite meal? Wonton noodle soup. Favorite sci-fi character? Ooh, uh, Ender from Ender's Game. Okay, and why? I like how he's a little kid who has the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he has to figure out a way to make things right, like basically to save the world from aliens. Mm. 
Okay, speaking of Sif, I have to ask, what are what are your thoughts on the whole new Marvel universe? Because like mm. when I was younger, it wasn't that popular to read comics. Right. Um, and I feel like now there's a whole generation growing up who I think it's great that they're experiencing and they get to learn more about um, uh, the comic book experience. For, for mm. instance, like now I feel like we have Moon Girl. It's a, a new comic by Marvel mm-hmm. um, specifically because of that. But okay. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to insert my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, so my first thought is it seems very PG-13 now, comic mm-hmm. books to me. Whereas I look at things like Neil Gaiman and Sandman, like mm-hmm. those felt really real. Like there was real consequences. The characters, like they were gritty. They had bad things about themselves and good things about themselves. Now it feels kind of like plain vanilla. I don't know. It, it's like there's no real stakes. It's just it's kind of been run through a whole bunch of focus groups. And now mm-hmm. those are the comics of today. Kind of like the Marvel movies now. I, I like them. They're still fun. It feels like it's been focus groups. And so the last section, so we're going to let you go soon, is called the big three. Okay. So you're the first in your field to do what you're doing. What's the one big mistake that you made when you were younger that Mm. helped influence and made you a much better entrepreneur? So the first thing that comes to mind is when I was younger, I thought that there were people I could hire or people I could get advice from who would know what they were doing. Because when I started off being an entrepreneur, I'm a medical doctor. I've never been in the business world. My investors are telling me, you really have no business experience. The first thing you need to do is get an experienced CEO. You need to get all sorts of experienced people who have been working in the industry for 20 years. What I found out was when you're going into a brand new industry, there is no playbook. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you're running that same playbook, most likely someone else has tried that or lots of people tried that and probably with way more money and they probably failed because otherwise it would have been solved. Because the first thing lots of investors want to do is just do the tried and true. And so because it hasn't been solved, because it's still a big challenge, it suggests that it actually requires a different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And most of those times, those different ways of thinking will fail, but it's much better if you actually try stuff off the beaten path. And so over time, I learned when I'm going into a new field that lots of people have failed at, think different, kind of like that famous, you know, Steve Jobs, Alva commercial, like truly try and think different and just try Mm -hmm. it. And no, try it knowing that most likely it'll fail. So fail quickly. Give it a shot, fail quickly, and then try something different again. And since no one has a playbook, there's no one on the planet who has experience in bringing the power of DNA testing to everyone. Mm-hmm. There's not that much advantage paying for a high-priced CEO or a high-priced person who's worked for 20 years in the industry. And so this leads naturally into the next question. If you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? It doesn't necessarily have to relate to your company, maybe it's something from back in university or from mm. your childhood. The number one thing I would do differently is I would have put way more time growing up in university and also as an entrepreneur into understanding people. Back to that human psychology. It's it's mm-hmm. the foundation. It's I realized that it's very hard to do anything significant. It's really hard to change the world unless you have a team of really smart, really passionate people. And in order to get a team of people to work with you, you need to understand them. You need to understand what makes them tick, what they want. And it, it's every day 
have to be on the ball when it comes to their psychology. And I just neglected that for most of the years of my life. And looking back, it was biting me all the time. Where do you see yourself in five years? In five years, our mission is to revolutionize diagnostics, to truly bring instant diagnosis to everyone in the world. And so Mm -hmm. if we have accomplished our mission, you will see our DNA devices everywhere. Doctors' offices, pharmacies, buildings, schools, and hopefully your bathroom. I view this as my life's work. I mean, how many times in history does someone get the opportunity to revolutionize medicine, like to truly bring instant diagnosis to everyone? It's, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where I think, I always think to myself, again, back when I'm 80 years old, I want to look back and say to myself, I worked on stuff that even if I were to work on it for free, I got paid nothing. It was mm-hmm. still really worthwhile. Thanks to Paul M. for sharing his story. Now we want to hear yours. Make sure to hit me up online. I'm at Takara Small on Twitter, or you can email the show at podcasts at globemail.com. I'll Go First is a Vocal Fry Studios production. It's executive produced by Kieran Reyna and Katrina Bolak with editorial assistance from David Michaels. For more stories about entrepreneurship, visit theglobeandmail.com. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>